You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at Commemoration and Conflict in Ireland, 1920-1922. This conference took place in Queen's University, Belfast, on the 12th of June, 2017. The conference was organised as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland. 2020 to 2023, in conjunction with the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics and the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University Belfast. Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020 to 2023, is a project run by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan that examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland. All papers at the conference were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now publicly available on History Hub. This episode features a paper by Dr. Matthew Lewis entitled Northern Experiences of the Civil War's Aftermath. The paper was introduced by Dr. Marie Coleman, who began her remarks by talking about the ideas behind the Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland project. Right, well, first of all, thank you everybody for um, coming today for the... This is the second in a, a series of seminars we've been running on the general theme of commemorating partition and civil wars in Ireland, something we will be coming close to when we get to 2020 and 2022. The last event which we had back in March, which some of you were at also, um, focused again on largely on the Irish Civil War of 22 to 23, <coughs> and we also had a very interesting um, comparative perspective with Finland. Uh, for those of you who haven't, didn't get a chance, or even if you were there and want to listen to it again, uh, all of those lectures have been podcast on the History Hub website and the, the lectures today will be podcast as well. So that's And I believe we've had something like 2,000 downloads of the previous lectures. So Word uh, is obviously getting out there. So there's, uh, I think that's a, a wonderful resource to have after the, uh, the lectures. So today we want to focus on the, um, the title of the project was very definitely Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars. In Ireland, and that's it's the civil wars bit, uh, both north and south of the border that would emerge in 1921-22 uh, that we want to focus on. So we'll, we'll start with the with the uh, the northern perspective uh, from Dr. Matthew Lewis, um, and Matthew completed his doctorate in Queens in Belfast in 2011, uh, quite a feat having survived being supervised by me in the meantime, and that of course was subsequently published as um, Frank Aiken's War, the Irish Revolution, 1916 to 23, um, focusing very much on, not just on Frank Aiken himself and his personal role, but also on that uh, internecine conflict in what would be the the fourth Northern Division area, um, straddling uh, the border between Louth and uh, and parts of Armagh. So it's, it's not just a biographical study of Frank Aiken as an IRA leader, but it is also an in-depth study of uh, the violence of that period between, between 1916 and 1923. Um, following that, Matthew, he's held two different, two postdoctoral uh, fellowships, first at the, the Centre for War Studies in UCD and then um, in the Centre for the History of Violence at Newcastle University in New South Wales. And he's taken up a lot of the ideas from the Irish Revolution uh, and, and 
tried to expand them into a much wider imperial and colonial setting. So themes like violence, um, themes like um, paramilitarism, which uh, are central to the the Irish experience of this period, have now been uh, taken up and he's studying them in a much wider uh, perspective, looking at, say, comparisons with um, paramilitarism and policing in Palestine, uh, where a lot of uh, the the black and tans and the auxiliaries ended up after uh, after they were um, finished in Ireland. Uh, So that's very much where his current research is going. Uh, So that's my my introduction. Just one more thing before I... Um, shut up and let the speakers uh, get to the, the serious work is just to um, thank our funders, the, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, uh, who have provided the funding to allow us to run um, the, these series of events. So without uh, further ado then, I'll hand over to um, our speakers and I, we'll start with, uh, with Matthew. Good afternoon everyone. Um, so the content uh, won't exactly match the title. I didn't have the clearest of ideas what I was going to do when I pitched it and uh, once I started writing it went off in a few different uh, directions. Uh, Basically I've decided to use this uh, paper as a dumping ground for various bits and pieces of material that I've gathered over the past few years and which haven't really fit in anywhere else. Uh, A good deal of it is left over from the book so you can expect a very clear geographical bias in favour of the Armagh, South Down and North Louth area. Uh, Other bits and pieces have emerged uh, since the book was published, primarily as a result of new archival uh, releases, but also uh, through the use of freedom of information requests at PRONI and uh, the National Archives at Kew. Insofar as there is a unifying theme, it's that of the often messy and complicated aftermath faced by Northerners in this period from around, say, 1922 until sort of 1925 or 1926, so the immediate aftermath of the conflict. And I'm going to use a variety of examples to try to highlight uh, three at times overlapping issues. The first is returning Republican combatants. The second is compensation. And the third is justice. And before I begin, I just want to really reiterate uh, that this paper is not the product of a well-rounded or very carefully conceived project. It's really just a speculative exercise, hinting at some post-conflict themes which may be worthy of further research in this period, uh, particularly given their resonance Uh, with present-day issues in Northern Ireland concerning the legacy of the Troubles. And so uh, now that I have your expectations sort of suitably lowered, um, let's start by looking at returning Republican combatants, both in the predicaments that they faced themselves and also in the predicament that they presented uh, for the Northern authorities. And I'm going to focus primarily on examples from the 4th Northern Division, big surprise there, and... For the most part, these were men who were either anti-treatyite or neutral in some respect. A lot of the issues would also have been faced by people who fought for the free state. I just don't have any particularly good examples uh, to share here today. It's also maybe a bit more intriguing to look at the experiences of northern anti-treatyites and neutrals, as they must have felt particularly uh, out of place in the new scheme of things in post-partition Ireland, especially in the immediate aftermath of the conflict. They wouldn't necessarily have felt all that secure or comfortable on either side of the border. And indeed, you do have to wonder, if you're in that particular situation, what is your next move? Now, some faced that predicament much earlier than others. Uh, Once fighting began in the Free State and further operations in the North were put on hold, uh, some became disillusioned and chose to take no further part in the conflict. So take Edward Fullerton, for example, from Newry. When provisional government forces seized uh, Dundalk Barracks from the still neutral 4th Northern Division 
on the 16th of July, he initially chose to join them, if only for practical considerations. Fullerton could not return home to Newry. Uh, only a few months earlier, he had taken part in the murder of the resident magistrate there, James Will Flanagan. And so he took the option which he hoped would allow him to stay in Dundalk and to remain a resident in Dundalk Barracks. Before long, though, he was placed at the head of a company and sent to the Curra, where other Northern IRA men were being concentrated as part of a short-lived and probably insincere uh, provisional government scheme to ready them for further fighting in the North at some obscure future date. Once there, however, he and the men he was leading got into a heated argument with camp authorities, and they were very quickly kicked out and sent back to Dundalk. And when they got back to Dundalk, they were found uh, that they were barred from the military barracks. They were told that even though they were unarmed, if they were seen approaching, they would be met with machine gun fire. So Fullerton decided he would be a neutral instead and uh, took no further part in the conflict. But now he found himself stranded in Dundalk, still unable to return home, with no means and nowhere to live. And as he later uh, recalled himself, I was practically starving but for the charity of a few friends. Now, he was lucky enough, however, eventually a sympathetic comrade who had joined the National Army uh, helped to set him up with a civilian post in the Marine Investigation Department at Clockerhead in Louth. And from there, he gradually began to build a new life for himself in the Free State. But others didn't land on their feet so easily. By the summer and autumn of 1923, uh, Northern Intelligence reports could still note that there were armed Republican gangs living rough on the border, particularly around Ravensdale. For the most part, these were men who had fought in the 4th Northern Division uh, and who had avoided arrest when the provisional government had broke up their camps in North Louth and Monaghan. Although they were technically anti-treatyites, many of them having uh, taken part in Frank Aiken's uh, brief recapture of Dundalk, they hadn't really been all that dedicated in the conflict thereafter. Uh, for many of them, it had really become little more than an exercise in avoiding arrest and preserving their own existence. And that situation then extended into the summer and autumn months after the announcement of the IRA ceasefire. And I'm presuming that their situation in the Free State anyway probably wouldn't have eased until 1924 when the use of internment gradually came to an end and a general amnesty was uh, announced for the offences committed during the conflict. But even then, however, they could face problems if they tried to return to their home districts in Northern Ireland. Although by the summer of 1924 the use of internment in the North was also uh, coming to an end, they could still face prosecution for specific offences, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, and they could also be subject to uh, exclusion orders, which would forbid them from living in any part of Northern Ireland except for a very narrowly designated area in County Antrim. But these potential issues uh, were not as much of a deterrent as one might think. Between December 1922 and January 1924, uh, the Northern authorities could note the return of 904 pro-treaty and 92 anti-treaty fighters. The much larger number of pro-treaty uh, returnees reflected the fact that most Northern units had remained pro-treaty after the split, uh, but it also probably reflected the fact that internment was still going on in the South and many anti-treatyites were interned. Now, the reception you received if you opted to come back at that point uh, really seems to have depended on the attitude of your uh, community. It rested on questions such as, you know, how public was your connection with the movement? Were you suspected of involvement in any particularly uh, serious offences? And were your neighbours likely to object to your presence in there for, you know, reporting to the police or to the Department of Home Affairs? So, for example, Patrick Began from Bally McNabb in South Armagh finally decided to return home 
in the spring of 1923 and found that he wasn't interfered with at all. By contrast, however, we could look at the example of Dr. James Gillespie from Cookstown. Now, first of all, Gillespie wasn't a member of the IRA, and as far as I'm aware, he hadn't actually uh, taken part in the Civil War. He was a prominent Sinn Féiner from the town who had fled for his life in May 1922. In that respect, respect, then, his case also highlights the fact that these uh, issues were not just being faced by former combatants, but also just anybody connected with the Republican movement. In November 1923, Gillespie decided to return uh, to Cookstown to try to salvage his medical practice, which was at that point a threat of being usurped by another doctor. He wasn't considered a danger. Uh, One report to the Home Affairs Department described him as a rather soft and innocent man in many ways who would not take part in physical violence himself. Nevertheless, when he arrived back into the town, he was immediately arrested. Uh, Some within the B-specials it seemed, had been very open about their intent on harming him if he had returned. And having discussed this with the constables involved, so the constables who were making the threats, uh, the RUC felt unable and to some extent unwilling to offer protection. On that basis alone then, he was deemed a menace to the peace of the locality and issued with an exclusion order. And the affair could have very easily ended there if it wasn't for the intervention of other local unionists and in particular one uh, local clergyman. They valued Gillespie's medical services and were very eager to have him return to the town. And they were very canny in that they got London involved. It it gave a very bad impression (coughs) that the northern government uh, would pander so blatantly to the more thuggish elements within their own forces. And so facing this pressure from London and also from these more uh, respectable residents in Cookstown, uh, the Department of Home Affairs revoked the exclusion order within a few weeks and Gillespie was told he could return, although I'm not actually sure if he did, because presumably the threats were still uh, standing. Now, in other areas, we see a sort of halfway between these two experiences. In Middleton, for example, a special constabulary commander developed his own scheme for uh, dealing with returned IRA men. Uh, He did this after being approached by concerned relatives of men who were on the run in the Free State and who wanted to return and he later described the scheme and its benefits when seeking official sanction for his actions. Unquote. Um, I decided on the system of encouraging these men on their return to call me periodically and to inform me of their movements. And the scheme has proved to be very satisfactory inasmuch as the doubtful man refrains from committing any crimes, knowing that he's under my supervision. Uh, the nervous man feels safe, as he knows that he's under our protection, and the loyalist neighbours appear satisfied knowing that the men are under our observation. These arrangements, however, could only really be applied uh, to men who were felt to be of no immediate threat, and indeed to men who were willing to subject themselves to that kind of scrutiny. Many others uh, would not have been willing to do so. Other Republicans, of course, chose not to rush the return. Um, They perhaps hoped things would maybe die down a little bit, or maybe that the outcome of the Boundary Commission would work in their favour. But even after a number of years had passed, choosing to go home could require a good deal of nerve and defiance. So consider uh, Charles McLeanan from Blackwater Town, for example, who finally returned in 1926. He was promptly uh, arrested for defying his exclusion order. He was told to return to the Free State and threatened with a six-month jail sentence if he refused, and then told as well that any uh, further refusal would lead to the doubling of that sentence with each uh, refusal or each defiance of the order. But he called the Home Affairs Department's bluff. He told them he was going to live at home regardless of the exclusion order and that they might as well save everyone a lot of hassle and keep them while they had him. And eventually then he was let out. He returned home, as he said he would, 
and within a few weeks he was given official notification that he was free to remain there. But at that point, though, in the late 1920s, um, plenty of other Northern Republicans facing these kinds of issues had simply decided not to return at all. Uh, some ended up staying in the free state. Others chose to immigrate, uh, although it's often impossible to tell whether their political pasts and the difficulties they were facing as a result were really the most compelling factor in uh, that decision to leave. Uh, let's move on now to uh, consider compensation. And I don't really want to delve too deeply into the complexities of compensation arrangements in this period because, to be frank, it's not something I've spent an awful lot of time looking at. What I do want to just do is to introduce two examples of the struggles faced by victims in this period, which highlight how inadequate the compensation arrangements could be, particularly when it came to dealing with this particularly complex period of conflict in early 1922 in Northern Ireland, when IRA operations had resumed uh, with the backing of both pro- and anti-treaty uh, both sides of the treaty divide, sorry, the anti-treaty executive and the provisional government and GHQ. And this, of course, uh, this period in early 1922 was one of the most intense periods of violence in the North uh, throughout the conflict. It's a period when we see atrocities like the Alton Massacre and the McMahon murders. It's the period when you have the shambolic Northern offensive, uh, intense confrontations on the border, places like Bleak Pedago and even in, in North Louth. And then, as well, the near-constant uh, intercommunal violence in Belfast. So there were many victims at that time who were seeking compensation for their injuries, loss of property, death of those ones, and so on. But the first example I want to share is that of the Fraser family from uh, Newton Hamilton. In July 1922, the head of the household, William Fraser, was abducted and murdered by members of the 4th Northern Division. His murder was relatively unusual, however, in that the remains were hidden afterwards. He was, to use the more recent terminology, disappeared. And indeed, there was, at first there was a good deal of confusion about his fate. It took about six months to work out that he had actually been killed and wasn't simply being held hostage. Uh, now, Fraser left behind a young family and a widow who was an invalid. She had had a cerebral hemorrhage a few years earlier and was partially paralysed. So the family found themselves in a particularly uh, precarious position and immediately made attempts to secure compensation. But they found themselves in a very peculiar kind of legal limbo, with no body having been recovered and no tangible evidence of the crime, there was no way of determining whether, where it had happened, whether it had happened in the north or the south, in Armagh or in North Louth. And courts in neither jurisdiction would accept liability. And so the family ended up spending the best part of two years fighting for compensation in both northern and southern courts. And his widow in particular went to great efforts to write to all sorts of people connected with the southern government and the northern government, uh, seeking some sort of satisfactory resolution to that, but also trying to find information on where his body was. In the meantime, there were searches for Fraser's body uh, on both sides of the border. Um, That pretty much happened with every new lead they received. But it was only finally then in June 1924, almost a full two years to the date after his abduction, that partial remains were finally discovered in South Armagh, and on that basis then, the family was finally granted compensation. Had the body not been found, it didn't look like there was going to be any resolution at any time soon. The second example I have for you today is that of the McGuill family from uh, Drummond T, who, like a number of other nationalists and republicans, were refused compensation <coughs> in the north and then had to take their claims to the free state. And they had trouble there getting them recognised as well. Now, the McGuill's claim, like other claims uh, like it, uh, primarily 
related to the destruction of property by the forces of the state in situations that were deemed a military necessity. The particular details of the McGuill incident, though, are a bit more extraordinary. Um, some of you will maybe be familiar with it uh, through its connection with the Alton Bay massacre. So James McGuill was uh, a Sinn Féin councillor. He was not, it seems, a member of the IRA, and at any rate, he wasn't involved in the violence of the period. But his home and his public house at Drummond Tee uh, was a refuge for uh, IRA volunteers. In June 1922, the property was ransacked by members of the Special Constabulary, and his wife and a female employee were sexually assaulted, um, possibly even raped. McGuill wasn't there at the time because he had been a, a focus for murder attempts in the past and had been spending his nights on the other side of the border. Now, this is one of the two incidents that contributed uh, to the IRA's decision to carry out reprisals a week later, which included the massacre at Alton Bay, but also an ambush on the special constabulary at McGuill's pub itself. And during that, one constable was killed. And after that ambush, then the property was destroyed on the basis of military necessity. The McGuill family had already uh, fled by that point. Now, Mrs McGuill did eventually get some compensation through the Northern Courts for her ordeal, a sum of around uh, £100, but the family was then refused compensation for the loss of their home and business. And at that point then, James McGuill turned to the Dáil Special Fund, uh, highlighting his service to the Republican movement as a Sinn Féin councillor and providing detailed accounts of all the hardships that he and his family had, had to go through as a result. But this too then was denied. And McGuill then ended up fighting this decision for the best part of a decade. In 1927, and again in 1929, his old friend Frank Aiken, now a Fianna Fáil TD, even took the dispute uh, to the Dáil, and he did so with a bunch of other claims like it, uh, dating back as far as 1920. Aiken's argument was that the state owed these people compensation because their property was destroyed uh, as a result of activities carried out by the IRA on the authority of the first and second Dáil. And in that respect, then, uh, those claims from 1922, such as McGuill's, proved to be particularly contentious because the government didn't want to acknowledge that the IRA had been carrying out attacks in the north at that time under its authority, although that's exactly what had been happening. Aiken also contrasted the Free State's response to northern nationalists in this respect with that of Britain's response to southern loyalists, who could seek compensation through the Irish Grants Committee. These interventions didn't achieve all that much, however, apart from a, a few very tetchy, dull debates about to what extent the provisional government had been aware of what was happening in uh, the North in early 1922. And it was only then, in 1932, under a Fianna government, that the claims were finally granted and the McGuills were given uh, some of around £3,000. Compensation, of course, uh, wasn't the only form of redress or recognition that concerned victims of violence in this period. And it would be remiss if I discussed aftermaths of the conflict in the North without addressing the issue of uh, justice. Though I think it sometimes is something that us <coughs> historians do forget about to some extent. I know I certainly have in the past. I think this is probably due in some respect to the nature of the sources. It's not always very easy to gauge private sentiment of victims on that particular issue. When we're engaging with them, we tend to do so through compensation claims and they weren't really an appropriate form in which they could discuss their determination to see perpetrators brought to justice, for example. It should be sobering to remember, however, that there was no justice for the likes of Alton Bay or for the murders of the McMahons or for any other number of atrocities that occurred during this period. And indeed, I think that's all the more striking when you compare it to the situation today, 
where we have these very visible decades-long battles for justice relating to things that have happened during the more recent troubles, like Kingsmill, for example, in recent weeks. Now, the best I can do today is to sort of highlight some of the issues that the authorities in the North faced uh, in trying to pursue prosecutions for offences during this period. Unlike, say, the situation in the Free State after the Civil War, there was no general amnesty for crimes committed in Northern Ireland during the conflict. Generally speaking, the authorities pursued convictions wherever they could, and the Northern government was really not shy about pushing against the constraints it did come up against. Even for the earlier years of the revolutionary period, which were in some part covered by the Royal Amnesty of the 12th of July 1922, they could prove remarkably belligerent on the matter. So in 1924, for example, two men were tried for the murder of Hard Mackay in Derry in 1920. And the case quickly caught the attention of officials in London who advised immediately that the suspects should be pardoned under the terms of the Royal Amnesty, which covered all offences up until uh, the announcement of the truce on the 11th of July 1921. But the Northern Minister for Home Affairs, Richard Dawson Bates, uh, steadfastly refused, and he argued uh, three points in particular. First, that the Royal Amnesty had absolutely nothing to do with the Northern government. They had merely uh, complied with its terms by handing over people who they had in their custody at the time who uh, fell under its uh, terms. Second, that they regarded the amnesty to only apply to individuals who had actually been convicted. So the men in in question would have to be convicted first before any question of a a pardon could be raised. And third, then, he argued that until the trial had occurred, it would not be possible to judge whether or not the murder had even been political in nature and uh, therefore whether or not it even qualified under the terms of the royal amnesty. In the end, that one sort of resolved itself. The trial went ahead and the men were acquitted. Meanwhile, other cases in the winter of 1922 to 1923 were pursued in the face of considerable opposition from Dublin and resulting pressure from London. One case in particular ended up provoking a good deal of discussion on this whole issue of prosecutions, and it concerned a free state soldier called Captain Sean Houston, who was arrested on the border in November 1922 and charged with uh, attempted murder in relation to an ambush that happened at Waddle Bridge on the 7th of February 1922. That was the night of these infamous kidnapping raids in Fermanagh and Tyrone, where up to 40 uh, prominent Unionists were uh, seized and taken across the border as hostages in an attempt to secure the release of uh, Republican prisoners in the north. The Free State immediately objected, uh, claiming that the arrest and the prosecution contradicted the terms of the uh, second Craig Collins Pact, Uh, which did include a clause about the release of political prisoners jailed for offences before the 31st of March 1922. Uh, They also argued um, that the affair risked opening old wounds on the border and would be uh, counterproductive to maintaining the peace there, which was quite fragile at that particular point. The response from Belfast was curt, though, as you might expect. As far as they were concerned, the Second Craig Collins Pact had never been fully implemented, Besides which, the clause in question had no bearing on the case as it was intended to show clemency for some political cases where no criminal intent was involved. And it certainly couldn't then be applied to something as serious as attempted murder. So the trial went ahead, Houston pled guilty and was sentenced to 10 years penal servitude. I'm not actually sure if he ended up serving that entire sentence or not because there were further representations for clemency from the Free State, but the file didn't actually record the outcome. 
One of the more compelling things that came out of the case, though, was a suggestion from Lionel Curtis, one of the uh, civil servants at the Irish office in London. He was mulling over the difficulties presented by this and other cases, and he suggested that London, Dublin and Belfast should agree a general act of oblivion with respect to offences committed by persons in the service of the northern and southern government up until the attack on the four courts. And to his mind, that was really the critical date, because at that point, everyone in the IRA had to decide which side they were on. Um, he also thought it would be a pretty convenient way for avoiding prosecutions of special constables uh, for crimes committed in the north up to that point, because after the attack in the four courts, uh, the violence decreased quite quickly. Uh, he had the note, though, at the end, somewhat fatalistically, that this was his own personal view. He had brought it up a number of times, and nobody seemed uh, disposed to adopting it. Now, just as a quick side note, I don't want to give the impression that the Northern authorities were entirely one-sided in their pursuit of prosecutions during this period. They weren't. Um, in 1925, they went to the considerable uh, effort of having a former B-Special extradited from Canada to face trial for the murder of a Republican in Tyrone during the truce period, for example. Uh, that also ended up with an acquittal. But generally speaking, these types of trials, uh, and in particular those occurring years after the fact, uh, were relatively rare. Uh, as you might expect, most cases never really made it that far because of limited uh, methods available for criminal investigation, the reticence or intimidation of victims uh, or witnesses, and um, the inaccessibility of suspects. And just in closing, um, we can look at the investigations that followed the Alton Bay Massacre as an example of these kinds of issues. So in the beginning, uh, the odds of bringing somebody to account for Alton Bay must have actually seemed quite uh, favourable. There were two named suspects immediately. Two of the perpetrators had been recognised by victims. These men were known to be sheltering in North Louth, and in the summer and autumn of 1923, the authorities even had firm information on their whereabouts. They were living among these uh, gangs I mentioned earlier at Ravensdale, rough on the border. Now, for political reasons, the option of approaching the Free State for assistance in apprehending these men, who were, after all, anti-treatyites, it wouldn't have been too objectionable to them, uh, presumably, uh, that was rejected by the Northern Government because they decided it wouldn't be good to make any overtures. I'm not exactly sure why they reached that decision. If I had to guess, I would say it was because they didn't want to give them uh, some sort of a leverage in other kinds of negotiations. In June 1923, then, a third suspect, a guy called Bernard Kelly, was actually apprehended in South Armagh. Uh, he had also been living rough in Ravensdale and had crossed the border to fetch supplies when he was captured. But the evidence for his involvement in the massacre was circumstantial. It amounted to little more than the fact that he had gone on the run immediately afterwards, and he was a known associate of one of the other uh, suspects. Kelly was also judged to be an impressionable sort who was easily influenced by others and probably of no great danger otherwise. And so on that basis then, uh, it was decided to simply get rid of him for a while. So they released him on the condition that he would emigrate and not return for two years. I would need to check the file again, but I think they even gave him a certain amount of financial assistance to do that. At that point then, efforts to identify perpetrators became a lot less targeted. Uh, when Jack McElhaw, an IRA man from Camlock, finally returned to South Armagh from the Free State in 1925, he was arrested and became both a suspect in the Alton Bay Massacre and also the murder of William Fraser, one of the cases I also mentioned earlier. During his incarceration in Belfast, McElhaw found himself the subject of an identity parade for the Fraser murder. 
he wasn't given any warning. He was just sort of brought out into the courtyard and then realized what was happening. Uh, and on that occasion, the witness didn't recognize him. But his warder let slip that he was also due to face another uh, parade for the Alton Bay Massacre, and he let slip the surname of the person who was coming. And armed with that information then, uh, McElhaw got a message out to South Armagh and got some of his friends to intervene. And it's worth quoting uh, McElhaw's account of that because it really was quite a horrendous thing for the victim, um, as he later described it. A stranger called in this young man and had a confidential chat with him in which he warned the young man that if he was noticed as absent from his work in his office or seen travelling to Belfast, it was liable to have the most unpleasant consequences. The stranger stressed that the young man's family had already suffered so much that the court, any further danger of a repetition of such happenings would be calamitous. And so faced with that very blatant threat of violence, the witness refused to cooperate, and McElhaw was released a few days later. And after that then, nothing else seems to have happened with the Alton Bay case. There was probably never a formal decision to close it or to stop trying to seek prosecutions, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to have went any further either. Like all the others, uh, it was just sort of left to quietly disappear into the background. And uh, on that note, I'm just conscious of the time, so I'll finish there. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. To listen to many more podcasts, including podcasts from the Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland project, go to historyhub.ie.